Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for, again, this time that we can be here this morning. Worship you. Take our hearts, Lord, and mold them to yours. Hold us tight, fast to you. We pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back here with you again this morning. Uh, Last weekend, I was in Ohio for our denomination's annual conference, and the weather was beautiful. It was beautiful. High 50s, low 60s at night, uh, 81, 82 during the day. It was was wonderful, a break from the humidity. From there, uh, I went over to Indiana uh, to join my family there for a little downtime, and we got back here Friday night. I had a great time, so thank you for for the break. One of the privileges I had at annual conference uh, last weekend up in Plain City, I was asked to speak at a workshop titled A Kingdom Perspective on Political Affiliation. So the the talk was uh, focused on how to bring conversations, specifically political conversations, uh, back to Jesus, especially when you're interacting with someone with whom you would disagree it was kind of a, a fun topic to, to tackle. Uh, the link for that will eventually be on the CMC website. I'll try to post that. Uh, it's highly relevant for today's polarized uh, political environment. So when that's up, I'll, I'll link it and give you a chance to go hear it sometime. Well, as Jason mentioned, we are continuing our mini-series this morning that we're calling A Theology of Suffering. Suffering is a universal human experience. You have either been in the throes of suffering at some point in your life or you're in the middle of it now or chances are at some point you will encounter uh, suffering in the future that will tax your fortitude, it will tax your strength. And so it's good to think about these things, uh, especially in advance so that you're prepared when they come. Because I do a, a fair amount of counseling here at Bethel, I get to sit firsthand often and hear the stories of individuals and suffering. A lot of it is heartbreaking. And the reality is no one comes to see you for counseling when things are going well, right? Uh, They come to you when things are going really tough, uh, when they need help. And so when it gets tough, people reach out for help. And so I have that tremendous, I call it a privilege and a responsibility of sitting on the front lines and hearing often the pain, uh, the difficulty, the testing, and then being able to point them back to uh, the great counselor, our Lord and Savior. So when I meet with someone, uh, part of what we have to do during our time together is work through a couple of foundational principles that you and I now have covered over the past couple of times together. The first question that is often asked as part of that counseling by a counselee is, is God sovereign over my suffering? Is he in control over my suffering? And so a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, we looked at that question and we answered, yes. Yes, he is. Nothing happens outside of the sovereign control of God, which then leads to the next question, the follow-up question. Well, if God is sovereign over my suffering even, does he have a purpose for my suffering? And so a couple weeks ago, we answered that question and we said, yes, yes, he does. In the life of a believer, 
God uses all things, including our suffering, for his glory and for our good. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, which brings us then to our third question, and it's kind of the category that's going through my mind as I'm talking with someone in the middle of suffering, and that is this question. What kind of suffering is this person enduring? What kind of suffering are they going through? And we could probably come up with different groupings, um, but I tend to put them in three categories. One, I call it deserved suffering. That's what we're going to look at today. That is suffering that comes as a result of sin, often my own direct personal sin. So there's that kind of suffering. There's another kind of suffering, and that is what I categorize as innocent suffering. And that's where the person who's going through suffering, it's not their own sin. Maybe they're being sinned against, or maybe they're experiencing the the effects of the fall in their life, but it's not their own direct personal sin, but they're still suffering. So how does that work? And then the last category is what I like to call righteous suffering. And that is when a person is suffering because he or she is connected in some way with Jesus. So because he's a Christian, because she professes to follow after Jesus Christ, there's suffering that comes along with that. So we're going to take those three in that order, Lord willing, over the next three Sundays. We'll look at deserved suffering today, then we'll look at innocent suffering next week, and then in a couple weeks uh, we'll look at righteous suffering. So let's look at this category that we would call, or that I call, deserved suffering. That is, suffering that comes as a direct result of sin. Now, even before we move into this arena, let me be crystal clear about something. Not all suffering is a direct result of your personal sin. Okay? Not all suffering is a direct result of a person's personal sin. Sometimes we fall into this erroneous mindset, and you'll hear this sometimes. You'll, you'll hear something like, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, right? We kind of fall into that. That's not always the case. I mean, consider even just one example. Consider Job. Job suffered tremendously. Uh, It it wasn't for his own sin that he found himself in the middle of suffering. Uh, That's what his counselors thought. His his buddies showed up and for days and actually weeks on end, they they sit there and they hammer at him trying to figure out what his sin was that that caused this. But there wasn't, it wasn't there. So not all suffering comes as a direct result of sin. The truth of the matter is, We don't always know what God is up to whenever we suffer. Consider this illustration by D.A. Carson. In any suffering, he says, or in any other event for that matter, God is doubtless doing many things, perhaps thousands of things, millions of things, even if we can only detect two or three or a handful. And here's his example. A godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. What is God doing? My little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, he may be providentially allowing the overflows of the fall to take their course. A constant reminder that it is appointed to all of us to die and then face judgment. 
He may be preparing her for eternity. It is a great grace to know when you are going to die and to be able to prepare for it. He may be shocking this woman's 20-something son who is living his life indifferent to the gospel to prod him into self-examination and repentance. He may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering to call another of her children into vocational ministry. He may be using this woman as a way to teach people in her church what it looks like to die well, anticipating several other deaths in the next two years. He may be teaching her minister husband to slow down and care about his family and in principle other people instead of being endlessly busy with the ministry. He may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Her funeral may be the means by which several of her unconverted relatives for whom she has been praying will come to faith. Conversions for which she would happily give her life. Perhaps one of those converts will become a Christian pastor of rare gift whose ministry of proclamation will touch thousands. Perhaps she is hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life and God is using this as a means to confront her. You see, I've barely started a list of possible things that God may be doing, and I have a small brain, D.A. Carson says. What does an omniscient God think he is doing? In other words, sometimes we have to cover our mouths and confess in faith that we cannot possibly grasp all that God is doing when someone suffers. So I don't want you to leave this morning and go running off to somebody who is suffering and automatically assume it's because that person is sinning. Okay? We don't know what God is up to. At the same time, though, we must consider, could this suffering be the result of sin? It might be. We have to consider that as a, as a category, okay? So well, this is what we're going to look at today. And I've taken this idea of deserved suffering and I've broken it down into four nuances. These are in your message notes. Four senses or four nuances, ways you can look at deserved suffering to kind of give us a different perspective, okay? So number one, when someone is surf, uh, suffering, it could be deserved in a universal sense. Okay, so here's what we mean by that. There is a universal sense in which we all deserve suffering. Okay, so let me give you an example. Uh, about every month or so, I, I suffer tremendously by having to drag my ladder out of the garage sit it up along the gutters and go through and pull out all the leaves out of the gutters, right? And in the Florida heat and the humidity, I'm out there sweating like crazy. It's not excruciatingly difficult, but it is a form of suffering, okay? It's a, it's a mild form of suffering. Now, here's my question. Is that suffering deserved? Is it a direct result of sin? Well, you actually could answer that question, yes, in a very universal sense, okay? When Adam sinned, 
he plunged the entire creation into chaos. Because Adam and Eve sinned, weeds and thistles grow. Leaves die and fall off the trees into my gutter. Right? Because death came into the world. And so working in that hot, blazing sun isn't always pleasant. But because I'm in the lineage of Adam, in a very general sense, I'm on the hook for suffering the results of his sin. He represents me in mankind. Okay, so Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in a universal sense, I suffer because I'm in the same bloodline as Adam. And just like he sinned, I sin too. Okay? So cleaning out the leaves from my gutter is not, it's not the result of my own personal sin, but it does point to a larger sin problem of which I am culpable. Okay? That's not typically what we think think of when we think of deserved suffering. But it does need to be a category, okay? How should I respond to that kind of suffering? Well, Romans 8, verses 18 to 21 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day, creation will be set free from its bondage. Until that day, I understand that my work will be toilsome. So I get out the ladder and I clean out the gutters. That's part of what I have to do as part of living in a fallen world. But I anticipate the day when I don't have to do that anymore, right? When creation is redeemed. Secondly, there's a sense of deserved suffering that we could call the natural sense. Most often, you and I call it sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow, right? So in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you steal and you get caught, you will either pay a fine or you will go to jail. That's called sowing and reaping. If you are gluttonous in your eating, eventually you will suffer with deteriorating health. It's the law of natural consequences. Right? You sow to it, you reap it. Paul says this uh, of sexual deviancy in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and catch this at the end, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When there's sexual deviancy, what you will find on the heels of that are disease, sexual health risks, unwanted pregnancies. You will find relationships ending when when those things happen. Abortion comes into the picture whenever those kinds of deviancies happen. So what should you do when you're suffering and it is a direct result of your own sin, a natural consequence of your rebellion against God? Well, number one, you repent. You repent. You repent to God and you repent to anyone else against whom you've sinned. And secondly, and this is perhaps difficult for a lot of us to to take, you bear the consequences of your sin. God does not typically and magically take away liver cancer from the one who has abused his body with alcohol all of his life. God does not typically and magically keep one from jail time if you've committed burglary or armed robbery. Those things can be forgiven by God, but part of the consequences is you bear the result of that sin. Do you remember the story of King David in the Bible? King David's up on the rooftop and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba and he commits adultery uh, with this woman. And he, he ends up getting her pregnant and as, as a, in an attempt to cover his tracks, King David calls this woman's husband back from the front lines. He tries to get him to go sleep with his wife. That doesn't work. So he sends the husband on the front lines of the battle, uh, asks the rest of the army to pull back. He's killed. He's murdered. And then when David gets the message that this woman's husband is murdered, voila, he swoops in. He marries her. She turns up pregnant. and He thinks everything's covered. Everything is, is going to be fine. But you know what? Even when David thinks he's off the hook, God knows. And God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David, and David is caught red-handed in his sin. Now, if you go back sometime and you read through Psalm 51, it is the, the repentance, the confession psalm of David to God, repenting for what he's done. And David truly, genuinely repents for his sin. And God forgives David. But you know what else happens as part of that story? In the interchange between the prophet Nathan and David, we find this. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says back to David, The Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. There's forgiveness there, but look at this. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And the baby died. David suffered greatly because of his sin. And you and I might sit here and say, was it fair that that baby had to die? I can't answer that question. I have to leave that judgment to God. But it certainly brought about its intended effect in David's life because it's 
never again recorded that he ever committed adultery again. But he suffered greatly because of his sin, this, this consequence, reaping and sowing. So we have a, a universal sense in which we suffer. We also have a natural sense in which we suffer when we sow things and we reap the consequences of those. Thirdly, there's, there's another sense in which some deserved suffering occurs, and that is for instructional purposes. Instructional purposes. And again, we sometimes wonder, is this fair? We can't question how God acts and what he does. But we read this story in, in Acts chapter 5. Interesting story about a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira. They're kind of caught up in the excitement of the early church. Everything's kicking off and there's people coming to the Lord. And one of the things that they observe, and you can read about this in Acts 4, they watch this Levite man come and he had sold this piece of property and he brings all the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And Ananias and Sapphira see this and in an apparent attempt to get the accolades that that Levite got, they went out and sold a piece of property, brought the money to the apostle to lay it at their feet, but the one difference is that they withheld some of the money for themselves, which in and of itself was not a sin. It would have been fine if they withheld some of the money for themselves. But what did they do? When they came to the apostles, they said, here's all of the money for selling the property. And do you know what happened as that story goes on? Peter looks at them and he says, uh, you guys lied to the Holy Spirit. And just like that, the, the husband just drops dead. They take him out. Later, the wife comes in who wasn't present earlier. They ask her the same question. Is this all of the money for the property? Oh yeah, this is all the money. And boom, she goes down too. Dies on the spot. And you think, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty harsh. Uh, you, you lie you lie in church and, and, and you're out. Why did God do that? That suffering was for instructional purposes. How do we know that? Well, in Acts chapter 5, in verse 11, Luke records this. Great fear, you better believe great fear, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It was a righteous kind of fear. It was a godly kind of fear. And I bet I can make a reasonable guess that there wasn't a lot of lying going on after that. I'm guessing people were pretty honest when they spoke after that. It was for instructional purposes. And the last sense in which we see deserved suffering is probably the most common, I, I would argue, in the believer's life, and that is disciplinary suffering. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to spend a little bit of time there looking at disciplinary uh, suffering. And I'm going to read a a portion out of Hebrews 12, but even before I read that, let me be quick to point out that when it comes to believers... There is a difference between condemnation and discipline. Condemnation and discipline. Romans 8 chapter 1 quite clearly says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
when you and I came to Jesus for the first time, we, we repented of our sins, we, we experienced salvation by faith, we believed in Jesus Christ, uh, we put our hope and in, in faith in Him, uh, we began to follow after Jesus Christ. When that happened... God forgave our sin and he gave us the righteousness of Christ. So we say, we are new creations. We are new creatures. We're we're new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. So as believers, we no longer stand under the condemnation of God. That's where unbelievers stand. Jesus said in, in John 3, we don't stand under the condemnation of God anymore when we've trusted in Jesus Christ. The penalty for sin has been removed from our record and we are counted as righteous in Christ. However, from that point forward, from our, the moment of our salvation until the moment we die, God is working His sanctifying work in us. He is rooting out any remaining sin or bad habits, old man habits that we have in our life that still cause us to stumble. And so, just like we would expect any good father to do, when you and I as believers sin, and we do still sometimes sin, God disciplines us. Not to condemn us, the condemnation was already taken, but God disciplines us to bring us to repentance. That's the kindness that leads us to repentance and and back into a faithful walk with Him. Okay? When my child gets angry at me at home and yells and and then storms off and slams the, the bedroom door, I have to lovingly discipline that child, right? I'm not condemning her. It's not as though I'm going in and saying, that's it, you're not my child anymore, you're out, I hate you. No, 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 it's, it's, it's not that at all. But in my love for her and my desire for her to be obedient, I am going to introduce some suffering into her life. Okay? It, it's going to be a little painful. Maybe it's taking away a phone. Maybe it's chores. Maybe it's grounding, whatever. Why do I do that? Because I love her. Now, she might not think that I love her at the time, but it's because I love her. If I didn't love her, I would ignore her. The opposite of love is not necessarily hate. It's just absolute apathy. I don't care, right? But because I love her... And I want to see her in a right relationship with me. I'm compelled to act in her best interest, even though it's painful for her at the time. Do you see see how that works? Disciplinary suffering. Okay, so follow along as I show you how our Heavenly Father does this in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here's the question. When I'm suffering, could it be that God is lovingly, caringly, gently disciplining me? Is that why I'm suffering Sometimes that happens as I read the word of God. That's his ordinary means, by the way, of disciplining me. I read his word and I'm convicted. I feel guilt whenever I disobey scripture. That's the spirit bringing discipline into my life. Just recently, I was reading Ephesians 5 and verse 4. It says, Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but let there be thanksgiving. And I was reminded that just that week, in fact, it was the day before, uh, a filthy word had escaped my mouth. And as I read Ephesians 5, I just felt so convicted by that. God, that is not how a child of God speaks. And so I repented thanking God for his discipline. It came through the ordinary means of his word and asked him to replace that with words of thanksgiving and and words of of blessing. Was I suffering? Yeah, a a sense of guilt. It was true guilt, real guilt. I often counsel uh, people who are struggling with guilt, depression, sadness, or, or shame. And many times, not always, but many times, it's because that person is harboring some secret sin and they're, they're knowingly disobeying God's word and, and they feel the hand of God kind of pressing down on them. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God presses down on our soul when we're, when we're sinning and he convicts us of that. Why? Because he wants us to humble ourselves repent and come back into submission to him. And often in our pride, we don't want to do that. We want to hold on to that little sin. And so God just keeps pressing. So the discipline of God is it's meant to, to bring us back. And that discipline has its effect when it produces obedience. Second Timothy chapter 3 says, All scripture... The, the ordinary means by which God disciplines us. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. And get this, for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God disciplines us through his word to bring about obedience. How else does God discipline us? Well, sometimes he disciplines us through other people. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, it reads, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And catch this, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Part of 
my role as a pastor and, and preacher is to preach the word and, and to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. In other words, I call you to obedience to Christ. I call you to come back to Him. And, and I've talked with you, many of you, after, after the sermons. And, and, and sometimes you'll say things like, man, I really felt the convicting discipline of God. And, and you were talking uh, just to me. And I, I don't necessarily have you in my mind exactly, but it's the Spirit of God that's talking to you and applying His Word and disciplining you. Now, there are times when people know the Word of God and they continue to disobey, and God ups the suffering. Sometimes that comes through church discipline. And sometimes God himself steps in with heavy discipline. There's a fascinating passage in 1 Corinthians 11. It describes abuses that were going on at the Lord's table. It's early church, they're having communion, and people were showing up at the communion table, or they would have a big banquet beforehand. They were getting drunk uh, at the communion table. They were neglecting the poor, so the rich would come. They would eat maybe ahead of time or, or push the poor off to the side. And here's Paul's commentary on God's discipline in that church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, it says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Interesting. Because of their sin, God was actually bringing about a premature death in some of them. That's pretty fascinating. He wasn't, re- he, he wasn't condemning them, but he was removing them from the church. That's discipline. They weren't condemned, but they were certainly disciplined, and they lost the privilege of living. Wow. Sometimes God's discipline is heavy in the life of a believer. So what should you do when you are experiencing suffering and it's deserved because God is trying to discipline you? Well, notice again in verse 5 of Hebrews 12 what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, first of all, don't regard it lightly. In other words, don't try to just brush it off. Don't try to pretend like it isn't there. Deal with it. Repent while you have time. Don't regard it lightly. But then he also says, don't go to the other extreme and don't faint when reproved by him. In other words, don't dive into the deep pool of despondency, of depression, of misery, of sulking. Don't continue judging yourself. God judged Jesus in your place. Repent, accept his forgiveness, stand back up, and carry on. Keep going. Your parents didn't hate you when they disciplined you. They loved you. And when you walked in obedience, after their discipline, they were excited for you. The same thing is true of God. God is for you. He's not against you. And when you repent, and when you get up, and you begin walking again in obedience, him. He's excited for you. 
He, he, that, that's, that's what he's trying to do. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, he said, it produces respect for God, just like it produced respect for your earthly father. It produces respect for God and it brings about fruit of righteousness. Every vine branch, that includes you if you're a believer, is pruned. That hurts. That suffering hurts as the, the vine is getting pruned. But what's the effect? we produce more fruit, more fruit over and over again. And remember this, if you are disciplined by God, it proves that you are his son or daughter. For that, you should be thankful. You should find great hope. I often tell people, uh, when you feel convicted by sin, rejoice because that indicates that the spirit is still at work in your life. That's a good thing. If you felt no conviction over your sin, that's trouble. That's problematic. But if you feel that conviction and and you feel that sorrow and you feel that sense of suffering when you disobey God, rejoice. He's disciplining you. Now repent and come back into obedience to Him. So we experience suffering in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's not deserved, but other times it is. And so if you're suffering today, here's my counsel to you. Take a few minutes and evaluate your suffering and ask yourself, is there sin present in my life that God is disciplining me for? That I know it's there and I've refused to deal with it up until now. Friend, let me just urge you, repent. Repent. Come back into obedience to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Find that Romans 8 verses 37 to 39 are true in your life. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God disciplines you because he loves you. And it's an evidence that he won't separate his son's love from you. Hallelujah. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. I just want to remind you too, when I'm finished praying, uh, back here in this Northeast classroom, there is someone back there who's willing to pray with you. If you want to pray with someone, make your way back there and they'll be happy to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for reminding us that there are times when we suffer because honestly we deserve it. And that's not always easy to admit. But there are times we suffer because we live in a, in a fallen world and we, we have to suffer because we're part of that fallen mankind. There, there are times uh, when we suffer because we've sown something in our life and we're reaping those natural consequences. Father, we accept that. We thank you that you forgive us. Help us to endure those consequences. There are times when we suffer because it's to teach us instructionally. And I pray that we would learn quickly and and we would learn well. And there are times when we suffer because we're being disciplined by your kind and gracious loving hand. And and you're moving us, you're you're shaping us, you're you're revealing our heart to us so that we can see our sin and and we can repent and we can come uh, and and be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
So I pray for, for anyone who's here this morning in suffering, that they would take the time and that by your spirit, you would reveal if there's sin there. If there's not, great, then it, it, it's something else. But if there is sin there, that uh, we would repent, we would come back and we would find that you love us. You nailed that penalty to Jesus a long, long time ago. You'll still keep us. But you do want to change us. You take us where we are, but you certainly don't leave us where we are. And we love you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.